Hey, 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 everybody. How are you all guys doing? Welcome to the Wimper Podcast, where we talk about all the goofy stuff related to space, astronomy, deep tech, AI, and a lot more to learn about which you won't find much in a conventional form of education. Today we have a guest who is a part of a relatively new organization that recently launched a payload in the orbit, comprising of a space weather monitor whose name, in short, is Roby. Via the PSLV C-53 rocket designed by ISRO. He is a working professional who recently graduated from IIST pursuing a B.Tech in aerospace, aeronautical and astronautical engineering. And if you're a person who's interested in talking about physics, space, and astronomy in a highly, highly intense manner, you are going to love this one. Our today's guest is Mr. Anantukrishna. Welcome to the third episode of the Vimper Podcast. Hope you enjoy it. Okay. Hey, everybody. Um, we have Anantu here on the podcast. And uh, we have, hi, Anantu. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing fine. Thanks, Divyansh, for having me over. I'm excited. Uh, excited. I'm excited too. Okay, uh, we have two guests over here today. Um, it's uh, Anantu Krishna, who is an engineer and uh, he's a rocket scientist and he ba- basically works at Digantara right now as... What do you work... Like, what is the whole... Uh, what do you call it? The theme of your job? So basically, I am a system engineer. So I mean, I wear a lot of hats at work. But so mm-hmm. I kind of do a lot of things. But basically, majority of my job involves mission design and astrodynamics. So what that mm-hmm. means is that I design orbits, I design constellations, and you know, uh, basically the system level design of a space mission in order to achieve a certain goal. Hmm. Okay, a lot of technical terms I don't understand. But anyways, uh, we have we have my cousin brother here. I don't know why he's muted yet. <laughs> but anyways, okay, we'll be starting off with our guest questions. Um, so uh, as we have seen, there are a lot of rocket engines around in the industry, right? Uh, like for example, there are rocket engines which work on iron propulsion, or uh, the most commonly used are basically uh, chemical propulsion, chemical propulsion ones, right? Uh, which which work on combustion, so uh, like there have been so many ro- rocket engines around, uh, but why is that only one typical bell shaped rocket cup used uh, in almost every rocket uh, since the starting of the industry? Well, that has to do with uh, you know what you call as compressible flow. So hmm. uh, in order to the, the whole goal of the rocket engine is to maximize the velocity with which the combusted propellants have, have to come up, mm. right? So the way you can do that is by increasing the velocity. Uh, you know, uh, you know there is something called as you know having the right area ratio, uh, so that the uh, propellants get accelerated to as much uh, speed as possible. So uh, in a bell-shaped uh, 
you know, uh, an exhaust. And that's how, you know, they have figured out basically optimized it such that that shape gives you the maximum velocity of exit. So when you have that much velocity, you're sending out that much momentum outwards, right? So you get the maximum propulsion forward. So that bell shape basically helps in increasing that momentum. But then there were also like uh, models which which with inverse bell shaped engines, right? Um, which which were less maneuverable, but they were more efficient. Like what I don't remember the exact term, but it was like in this shape, something like that. If you remember, you mean okay, a reverse cone kind of. Stuff. Yes, yes, yes. It was like it was it was like it was like the the bell shaped the two D model of a bell shaped has been has been like the bell shaped is if it is like this, then it has become like this. The, the whole two sides have come uh, opposite to each other, and. I mean that that is okay, why that is the yeah I don't okay, that's remember actually exactly. rather interesting because I am not aware of it and I'm actually not into the propulsion side of uh, things as yes, much as yes yes that's, know, true, that's true, stuff, but yes. that's actually rather interesting I would like yes. to look into it. Mm -hmm. okay the type of engine that I was talking about is called an aerospike engine now those of you who do not know how an aerospike engine looks I have put a Google Drive link down in the description you can check out the images that I've taken up from the internet and see what an aerospike engine looks like. Uh, uh, moving on, uh, talking about payloads because that's the part that you worked with at Digantara, right? Yes. Yes, uh, um, payload is not exactly my but uh, satellite. part of it, but yeah. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, payload can, can, contains a lot of things, the fairing, uh, that, that's the part because that's going no, to be okay. on the top. So when, when you say payload, uh, there's a thing uh, here. Okay, so mm -hmm. in the sense of a rocket, when you're talking about a rocket, mm -hmm. the payload of the rocket is the entire satellite, right? Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about a satellite, the payload inside the satellite is the main sensor or component that you want mm -hmm. to launch into space. So when, uh, you know, what Digantara is doing, we are not in the business of rockets, neither are we in the business of satellites, because satellites is, you know, it's a whole different rocket science that we don't want to get into. So what we are doing is, uh, we are just building the payload inside the satellite. So the payload, you know, whatever we need, which is like uh, uh, tracking objects or uh, monitoring space weather, we just build that payload. And we just put it into satellites from, you know, from our partners. So mm -hmm. that's what, when, what I mean when we say that we are working on payloads only. Okay. Yeah. So, so uh, a question. Yes. Yes. Sure, yes. Sir. So uh, right now, I know your firm is like dealing primarily in like the components inside the satellite, but then uh, you also happen to specialize in space mission designs, right? Right. So uh, the thing is that I am not the one involved in the payload design. I am mostly in the mission design only. So we have a separate payload team that works on the payload. So, uh, right now, from what I understand, there will be complex trajectory planning that would uh, be there in space mission designs, a lot of mathematics. Do you right. think, uh, what is your opinion? Do you think if we have those futuristic propulsion systems like uh, the one that NASA is propagating, wherein we just bend the space time uh, uh, and just uh, travel within a second from one point to another, wherein we don't use the conventional rockets? And uh, if that is achieved, then do you think space mission design as such would become quite irrelevant? By the way, if you want to check out the audio versions of this podcast, you could check out any of these platforms, whether it be Spotify, Radio Public. We are going to be verified on Amazon Music pretty soon too. 
and Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or whichever one you may feel comfortable with. Feel free to check out our other episodes and follow us on social media. But that too, only if you're committed. This is astrophysics, right? I think it is astrophysics. But, but that's a very interesting question. I like that question. Yes, so it's yes. like you get, if you want to get from point A to point B, you just warp the space from point A and point B so that you get there. But again, hmm. that uh, I don't know if that will make uh, mission design irrelevant because you again still have to do some kind of a math, some kind of calculation. So but, yeah, is, is, it, is, is he talking about wormholes? Are you talking about wormholes? I don't know. Wormhole, I think, would be like a higher level uh, version of what he's talking. He's warping the space time, hmm. essentially, right? You can so if, you, if you're technically talking about warping this space time to a certainty where two points could meet meet each other that's like yeah, that, uh, that, that, yes. that that that's like a lot of gravity required around it right yeah, yeah. like almost but a black yeah, hole black hole beneath it yes yes yeah. but i don't know how practical that is but yes yes like, for me it's still science fiction <laughs> yeah okay. yeah sure it is but then nasa's carrying out experiments so i was just wondering if that happens if it goes through, then will this uh, branch become irrelevant? Uh, like I mean, so much I mean, of math would be avoided then. No, no, but again, if you're warping space time, I think that will only increase the math. <laughs> You'll have like a whole different level of uh, four, four dimensional math to solve, I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Do you want to continue or shall I continue? Okay, I, I, I'll do that. Okay. Talking about payloads in which satellites when getting into force mainly seem to use ion propulsion engines. I, th- I think uh, most satellites use ion propulsion engines. I don't know. Uh, uh, but small yeah. satellites use, uh, you know, prefer to use ion prop- propulsion mm-hmm. because yes, it's yes. You know, smaller, uh-huh. it can fit it into uh-huh. cubesats. Uh-huh. So through which they can attain higher speeds but yet lower acceleration because uh, ion propulsion engines have really low accelerations, right? Uh, yes. As to what I heard, as to what I heard, that one of NASA's satellites was unable to uh, completely slow, slow down itself uh, uh, by na- about 94 kilometers an hour, uh, and it took it around four days to do that. So that was yes, that was that was a real long amount of time to just uh, de- decelerate an object. So, have you been familiar with ion propulsion? Uh, I mean, I'm aware of ion propulsion. I know why it's, you know, preferred in, uh, you, uh, you know, small satellites. The thing is, uh, ion propulsions, although their thrust is very small, the advantage that they give is that uh, their specific impulse is very high. You know, what that means is that for a given mm-hmm, amount mm-hmm, of fuel, mm-hmm. ion propulsion gives you more energy than chemical yes, propulsion. Yes, yes. As so, to what I heard, uh, is, as to what I heard, I think... Uh, in comparison to uh, combustion fuel engines, combustion fuel engines give around 3.5 kilometers a second, and uh, uh, ion propulsion engines give around 40 kilometers per second, which is like uh, even greater than 10 times, right? So, okay, uh, what are those numbers? Uh, it sounds like uh, delta V's, right? Uh, Changing uh, velocity. No, uh, uh, no, this is this is uniform velocity. It's not acceleration. I'm talking about. Because if, I, so if, if it would have been acceleration, I would have talked about kilometers per second square. It's kilometers per second. Yes, so what I, I, so what I, yeah, 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 continue. Yeah, so to get like the same amount of uh, delta V, you know, a change in speed, 
the ion propulsion will take a longer time than chemical propulsion that is the mm-hmm. only difference there mm-hmm. and of course uh, the amount of fuel or the amount of energy taken by the ion propulsion will be lower uh, but yeah that's a compromise that you make mm-hmm. okay um why i brought up uh, ion propulsion is because i uh, got familiar with one of these concepts i mean it, it's completely hypothetical i don't know if it, even if it's practical but i just thought about it in fact i drew uh, a model of it but anyways if if you if i if i if you want me to show it i will show it accordingly but yeah one of the concepts that i th- thought i'd be talking about was the dual engine method of using rocket engines which was like what if we take a rocket's first stage basically com- comprising it uh, uh, of uh, we could say hydraulic systems to timely shift the engines according to their needs for example uh, if it is difficult for me or for any organization to decelerate uh, an ion propulsion rocket engine we could just cut off the power right for example if like let me elaborate um, if like during a launch i need a, a really high acceleration against the gravity and the drag that is going to be there so i would need combustion engines in that case but definitely but when the rocket gets into orbit after that um, uh, high acceleration becomes uh, sort of ir- irrelevant at some points because if if the rocket has to go out of the orbit like like it has to go from apogee to perigee and change its apogee and perigee all the time the way it, the way it was done in mission mangal um, as to what i have seen so unless the case is is like that i think uh, i would need combustion engines but when the rocket gets into orbit after that and uh, high uniform velocity is required in that case uh in the, at least in the orbit high uniform velocity is required the rocket has, rocket or the satellite has to move at a certain uniform velocity all the time it does not have to accelerate or decelerate right so basically that part could use ion propulsion and then now in this case that we can switch engines by attaching them to hydraulic hands or like uh, like the way you have seen in, in uh, cranes and jpgs so uh, i want to know like what's your th- thought on this bury idea like let me show you the in, in fact the diagram too if if you want me to do that no no uh, let me give you my thoughts first okay. uh, uh, there's a thing that uh, you don't send an entire rocket as it is to space Mm-hmm. so rocket have stages right as mm-hmm. soon as it reaches a certain altitude it drops the first stage and then it mm-hmm. goes up higher and it drops the second stage so you don't technically need an you know switching between engines you can just uh, you know put these uh, chemical propulsion for all the lower stages and the upper stage that actually takes the satellite to the velocity that it needs to go that can be an ion propulsion so you don't need to you know have two separate systems that are you know obviously heavy on its own and then shifting between the two you can have the first phase of the trajectory done by chemical propulsion and then you can drop that onto the earth and then move, move that's the that's stages. a typical thing that happens already right if the if the chemical yeah, combustion part is done but then if i take this to even a, a higher higher scale like uh, interplanetary missions then in that case i would need acceleration deceleration all the time almost yes yeah, so I at mean, least I like because, idea, yeah. because uh-huh. yeah so it, you will have a lot of options in the amount of thrust you can have mm-hmm. but you need to work out the mass budget do you have sufficient mass to have two different types of propulsion systems and two different types of fuel maybe and mm-hmm. will it work out for your mission if it works out for you it's a really good idea because you can mm-hmm. have a low thrust operation you can have high thrust operations 
that's probably because hydrogen uh, hydrogen and oxygen are going to be the ones that are going to occupy the most amount of weight in the first stage i think and then uh, xenon is going to be there in the ion propulsion uh, ion propulsion engine so xenon is basically um, a noble gas so i don't think it would be having a lot of relative mass compared to what oxygen and hydrogen like would be having oh. yeah, right so uh, it's almost going to be negligible in comparison in comparison to them so i don't know as i said it's completely blurry it's <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. the thing is that even now satellites mm-hmm. use multiple propulsion systems for different things but there it's like for linear propulsion you use one system for attitude uh, control you use a different system like uh, you may have an ion propulsion system for uh, linear motion and then you use core gas thrusters for uh attitude control something like that so you certainly do have options of having multiple propulsion systems you just need to do the math and figure out if you can or that, that is mostly because uh, like uh, unlike conventional uh, rocketry systems ion propulsion all cannot basically give you the lift off it can only generate uh, the thrust in the space you need for maneuvering right Yeah, that's, that's what I said. Ready. That's what I said. That's what I said. Just cut off the power of the ion propulsion engine when it is not needed, and because we can do that, we can do not decelerate it really well, but we can cut cut off the power, and we can also do that with the with the chemical propulsion engine as well. Because we at at least at until the moment we don't need uh, high acceleration. For example, why I came with this idea is because. Uh, If you've heard of this term called Hoffman uh, trajectory, uh, uh, trajectory, right? Hoffman transfer. Yes, yes. So a kind of orbital maneuver. Hmm. So, uh, basically, uh, because we have to wait every twenty-six months for uh, Mars to be clo- the closest to to the Earth, right? So, uh, at that time, it is around. Uh, it is at around sixty-four million kilometers, or so. Uh, and then when the mars the when the, when the mars is the planet is basically uh, it moves basically forward it it is around 264 km uh, 264 million kilometers and at at least that uh, we have to move in a trajectory that that we have to uh, predict where mars is going to be uh, after this this much amount of time uh, i think that's what hoffman uh, transfer is right Uh, I don't know. I I don't think that is Hoffman transfer. That's like mm-hmm. when you are raising a certain orbit, you know, mm-hmm. you just uh, uh, what do you say? You just do impulsive maneuvers to first raise the apogee to the desired mm-hmm. orbit, and then mm-hmm. you reach the apogee, you raise the perigee to the desired orbit. That's the mm-hmm. Hoffman maneuver. Mm-hmm. So in the Hoffman uh, transfer, you need high impulse burns. Yes, so b- a, because we have to get out of the Earth's gravitational field too. Uh, so in that, yes. in that, in that case, we have to exit exit the Earth's gravitational field and then reach and then Mars's gravity will would help us assist to get inside it. Yes. So, so uh, that is why I thought about it in this way because let's take it in four stages. Um, the uh, the launch part is going to be done with the chemical propulsion engines then when the orbit is, uh, when the rocket is in the orbit we don't need any chemical pro- propulsion for acceleration at the moment so we'll just keep it that way then uh, uh, only at the cert- only at certain amounts uh, of time at the same point like that's how it's done right uh, w- when you power up the rocket and then it uh, then its orbit increases 
then then again it reaches that same point and then you power it up and then again the orbit increases and that's how you just catapult it and out of the earth's orbit so 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 that was that this is the method that is done basically when the budget is low i, I don't know at least that's how they portrayed it in the movie but if 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 this is a if this is a way that it is done still then probably this was this would work out and now now the part of the uh, chemical propulsion engine has finished in the earth's orbit and when it starts starts exiting uh, uh we do not have, because we do not have to like wait 20 like months so that the rocket like 9 months to re- for the rocket to reach mars because that's a lot of time because we have already spent 26 months planning uh and now nine extra months so that's going to be a lot of tra- travel time if we if we really want things to be flexible and smooth so in now now sh- shall we start uh, the iron propulsion engines and then we could we could get a higher amount of uniform velocity right and, uh, and the maneuvering can be done with the help of jets that that are put b- uh, beside the which beside the satellite and then uh, it it would be able to reach uh, mars in a re- pretty short amount of, uh, probably i don't know i don't i haven't done the math yes yes we we can get i haven't done the math because i even don't know it but i'm just saying so uh, you could reach it reach there and then probably cut cut off, cut, cut off the whole power of the iron propulsion engine uh, reverse the rocket i mean the, the satellite and then start decelerating it and and then probably the mass orb, orbit will catch us up and uh, we would be in it in the martian yes, orbit yes there's that small catch there if you get there mm-hmm. faster you might mm-hmm. be you know the amount of mm-hmm. acceleration you might think mm-hmm. will be higher mm-hmm. will be higher, higher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah. that is why that is why i said if we have two different propulsion engines in the same mm-hmm. satellite then probably probably this could work out Hmm. but and there is also said, the component yeah. of cost obviously and it mm-hmm. is worth mm-hmm. getting there faster you need mm-hmm. to do all that also but so if like we that. have to if we if if we have to like build a civilization there as what yeah. they are planning there in the us but then in, i think the things need to be a bit more flexible like how could you wait for 26 935 months damn yeah so that's like over 3 years over 3 years about 3 years <laughs> yeah so yeah. i mean that's going to be a really difficult thing to do um okay we'll talk about this later but <laughs> moving on uh so coming on to some questions based on macro sized organizations this is not space science now i'm just asking about how organizations uh, specifically uh, like at which you have worked worked uh, in uh, work uh, uh, and uh, how they basically perform and uh, what is the work culture like and all of that stuff and like are there different uh, uh, stages and uh, or are there different uh, rooms or groups of people for different kinds of work is it done that way because there's one one satellite that you have to make right so, so the, uh, here uh, you find like a huge difference between how a large organization functions and a small startup function okay. i have you know worked for only two startups till date so the thing about startups is that you have a lot of uh, you know very less people and a lot of work to get done so one individual will be responsible for a lot more things like right? so you will have to wear a lot of hats you will have to do a lot of different things you know like for example i have done not just astrodynamics dynamics i have done you know communication i have done optics i done a lot of things right but in a big organization you will have teams for each of these tasks 
So a certain individual will be responsible for, uh, you know, more of a specific task within the entire big picture. So that's one uh, difference between this. And I would also say that maybe in a small uh, startup like culture, you have a lot more, you know, say in the decision making. Uh, there is no a hierarchy structure per se, but in a huge organization, you'll have a big hierarchy. You'll have someone mm-hmm. above you and then someone above them. And then mm-hmm. in order to, you know, get some ideas out, you know, to execute some of your ideas, you need so many approvals. You can't make a big difference in that organization, but in a startup, you can. That uh, mm-hmm. is another major difference. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, one more thing. Have you finished it? Have you finished it with the answers? I think uh, I would add that, you know, in terms of efficiency, <laughs> uh, maybe I might, you know, might offend a few people, but the big organizations aren't very uh, efficient. Yes, but, yes. Uh, startups will get things done faster because they, they have lesser, you know, signatures to get, approvals to get, you know, they just mm. get stuff done. That's mm-hmm. a difference. So then probably government intervention uh, slows things down, right? Even in a yes. startup, if any, government comes in and starts playing its role, then probably things yeah, any would kind start of, slowing down. Uh, you know, authority will slow mm-hmm. things down, that's mm-hmm. for sure. So why does that even happen? Like government wants to support uh, like space research in itself, but still it does not provide that much of flexibility and uh, smoothness that should be there in the work function, the workflow. Well, it's like Why a two-sided coin. You, uh, you cannot avoid having that control over a big organization, right? Because there are so many people and so many, you know, things that could go wrong. So in order to get such a big group of people, the big goal, you know, aligned, you sometimes kind of have to have this system in place. So, you know, that will kind of end up in this, you know, uh, negative side of things being slower, but it also has the positive side of the entire organization moving in the right direction. So it's a two-sided coin. It's difficult. Mm-hmm. Understandable. Okay. Uh, uh, because you are more into uh, predicting the weather conditions and this basically constructing satellites who which uh, are able to work on weather conditions of uh, or, or climatic conditions of places uh, around the planet. Is that something like that? Yes, so uh, here's the thing, weather, you know, there's a difference between terrestrial weather and space weather. So terrestrial weather is what we usually say, you know, sunny, rainy, you know, the temperature, humidity and stuff. When you go out into space, the weather means a totally different thing. So although it, you know, both terrestrial and space weather basically originates from the sun, the, you know, space weather drivers are different. It's like, it's things like charged particles, you know, radiation, uh, uh, things like magnetic field, all mm-hmm. of these will affect how a satellite, you know, performs in orbit. Because, uh, okay, uh-huh. because you have to yeah. go through okay, the ionos, about, ionos, uh, yeah, speak, speak, speak. Yeah, like uh, we were discussing about weather, right? So uh, talking about a bit about space weather, it's like quite unpredictable there, right? Like anytime there's yes, a slow, uh, solar glare and all that. So yes. like we were discussing about uh, engine and propulsion, these are things that we can calculate uh, beforehand. But uh, when you're designing a space mission, how do you take into account uh, these uh, solar flares and everything? Is there any way to take that into account beforehand? So that is one problem that we want to solve. So right, right now, it's very difficult to predict. The, the sun will, you know, all of a sudden throw a tantrum. Uh, SpaceX lost 40 satellites, if you read about it. Oh, that was happened, you know, that happened a while ago when, you know, the sun 
through a flare and suddenly the atmospheric density increased and they lost 40 satellites. So right now it's very difficult to predict flares, very difficult to predict, you know, coronal mass ejections. So uh, the way we can do that is basically we need to understand the sun and the space weather better. So at the moment there is very little information about it. There is very little data. So what we want to you know do is we want to solve that by sending as many sensors, space weather sensors in orbit. So we have real time data coming in. So when we have lots of data, we'll be able to you know say something. There is a player that might come up in a few hours. Please turn off your you know important systems or. Uh, do some some kind of you know safety procedures. So that's what we are trying to solve. It's very difficult to predict, but that's a problem that needs to be solved. Yeah, basically, like a tsunami warning system, you just place sensors in the water, yes. just like that. Correct, correct. So you uh, at the moment, uh, apart from sending satellites to lower orbit, uh, you can also send satellites to you know uh, what you call as Lagrange one point, L one point. That is the space between Earth and Sun. So those points will experience the flare you know, or the you know uh, flux of uh, protons or radiations even before it reaches Earth. So that is one way to do it. Hmm. Anything else? Okay. Okay. Hmm. Okay. Um. Um. Just uh, not just space weather conditions, but even uh, predicting the weather conditions here on Earth is quite difficult for a satellite, right? Like you can't, be, yeah, yeah, you know, can't be guaranteed about it. Yes. yes, yes. Because so, uh, it's like not yeah. only about uh, weather. I think uh, this uh, there's some particular impact about uh, albedo Earth and impact uh, from the air glow and uh, Earth's geomagnetic field effects also on uh, space mission design. Can you like uh, delve into that also a bit further? Okay, uh, when you talk about albedo, that will affect things like Earth observation missions. So Earth observation that, you know, looking at Earth, you know, imaging through either uh, visible light or infrared light, when there is a higher Earth albedo, it will increase the noise in your image. So that can be unpredictable. And, you know, magnetic field variations will basically uh, suddenly change the amount of protons that will hit your satellite. So these things can affect the electronics on board. So, you know, all of a sudden your, you know, program might stop working, you might have to restart, things like that. And one, uh, okay, uh, this uh, magnetic field, one manifestation of that that you can see is the auroras. You might have uh, seen photos or at least, I don't know if you have seen it for real, but that happens because of sudden variation in magnetic fields. So, and the, how this aurora works is because of the sudden flux of uh, charged particles. They come and hit the atmosphere and they react. The ones that the happen in Arctic. Yes, exactly. The one that it actually happens on both poles, uh, but there's no one in the south pole, so nobody sees it. Yes. <laughs> so, so it just reacts with the atmospheric molecules and gives the emission spectrum. You know, oxygen gives out green, and others give out other colors and things like that. So that is one manifestation. But in space, also it affects satellites in the form of radiations, and you know, it'll affect your instruments, whatever uh, sensor that you have. It will cause variations in those. Mm. Okay. And uh, one more thing I, is that, you know, uh, as, uh, as I mentioned about SpaceX, uh, when there's a sudden solar flare or influx of, uh, you know, particles, the upper yes, atmosphere yes. starts heating up. So things that, uh, the satellites that are in lower uh, orbits, they will suddenly increase a higher drag. So uh, that's how SpaceX lost the satellites. When, you, when it, you know, sensed the higher drag, it went into safe mode and it couldn't come out and just deorbit it. 
So when you put, uh, you know, satellites below something like 500 kilometers, this sudden increase in drag can, you know, completely spoil your mission. So you need to account for that in mission design. Hmm. And uh, like uh, this is um, primarily not for I guess uh, not for interplanetary until unless you are exactly uh, talking about the frame wherein they reach uh, there on the planet's orbit. Uh, but what is the general strategy for like uh, rendezvous in uh, Earth's orbit or that planet's orbit? Like uh, when you're talking about space mission designs, how do you deal with that aspect? Like what is the general strategy and the mathematical calculation behind that? You mean uh, rendezvousing to another satellite, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, I haven't personally worked on rendezvous, but the thing is that, uh, first of all, getting near to a satellite is very difficult. So, if you are getting near to a satellite, it should be your satellite, because otherwise you wouldn't know accurately where it is. So, if it is your satellite, uh, if both the components are yours, you will have an idea about its position. And there are, you know, established uh, maneuvers, just like Hoffman maneuvers, there are maneuvers that you can get to closer to an object. And once you reach, there's an interesting part about once you reach closer, you know, close enough to your, you know, uh, object, let's say you're, you want to dock, then you shift into something else like a LIDAR or a radar to see the object that is near you. Because after that point, it's difficult to, you know, work with GPS coordinates. After a certain point, you just move into LIDAR and see, uh, then you just try to get closer using those LiDAR information and dock into the, you know, either the ISS or some other satellites. Currently, there are uh, companies that are working on these kind of stuff, you know, in-orbit servicing, in-orbit fueling, all these people are working on, you know, rendezvous operations right now. Okay, okay. Hmm. So, um, my next question is that basically predicting the weather conditions of location by the present technology on Earth is still difficult, right? Yes. So yes. something like satellite mapping and weather forecasting as to what it sounds uh, seems pretty boring, I think. <laughs> like you have to predict the weather conditions of a place, but like how difficult or, or how big of a problem uh, solver does one have to be to solve the problems to which... Uh, we still don't have the answer to because it sounds something basic, uh, although like just predicting the weather yeah. conditions of a place, like how it's going it to be, but it's basic, still, it is not. Uh, it is not. So, yeah. it, when you uh, say weather from a layman's point of view, it's just, okay, when is it going to rain? What is going to be the temperature? But when you think in scientific terms, there are so many drivers. The, First of all, atmosphere is complicated. How the winds and how the air movements are happening at a place is very difficult to predict. And how it carries, you know, moisture from water bodies, how it moves through the terrain, how it sheds that water. It's a very complicated numerical model. Even at the moment, in order to predict weather, you need to have supercomputers crunching numbers all the time. Uh, it's a very complicated numerical solution. So. Uh, from a scientific sense, it is a very complicated problem. That's why it's difficult to do. It's, it, it sounds easy, but it isn't. That is the core of the issue. Hmm. Okay, moving on. Uh, so, basically, we were talking about LiDAR a couple of days ago, right? So, yeah. if you could just elaborate for our audience as well, that what is a LiDAR and how accurate is it and in which conditions? Okay, so LiDAR is basically... Uh, similar to radar and sonar. So instead of radio waves or sound, you use light for you know ranging. So the, it's an active form of detection, which means that you send out light, and you the light 
reflects off of objects and you detect that light, the reflected light. So the way it works is that you take the time gap between sending the light and getting the reflected light. And you use that time gap and the speed of velocity, uh, sorry, the velocity of uh, uh, light, and then you get the distance, you get the distance of the object. So that can be used to get the accurate position of an object in your field of view. So, I mean, it's very accurate in the sense that the accuracy is, you know, uh, it will be in the order of the wavelength of whatever, uh, you know, signal you use. For RF, for radio frequency, uh, you know, they are in the order of centimeters or meters. But light, you know, that the wavelength is like nanometers. So they are pretty accurate. But, uh, okay, this is... But their range would be shorter, right? Like, it would be as much as our visible range. Yes, correct. So the range of uh, photons, uh, it, it's much shorter. So you need a lot more power in order to, you know, detect something that's very far. That is also correct. Then probably we are, because probably we are not just working with within the visible range of light. So, uh, because so, the speed uh, of light is going to be the same everywhere. The frequency uh, varies. Yes, so, so, so what uh, we what can even use infrared. So we are working on infrared. Uh, I mean, there are multiple reasons for it. One of it is that uh, it's safe for the eye, hmm. the frequency that you're working on. So it, it, it's, you know, safer for ground, you know, while testing and stuff. And I mean, there are a couple of other reasons which I don't want to get into. Uh, so oh, you can yeah. use any light, basically. So uh, the thing is that uh, the reason why we want to go into LiDAR is because miniaturization. So if you want to miniaturize a radar, it's really difficult because, you know, uh, just like accuracy, the size of the antenna is also dependent on the wavelength. So the amount of, you know, power and the amount of, not power, the size of the devices will be higher for a radar. But for a LiDAR, you can miniaturize it very easily. So you can put these things on CubeSats and send out LiDARs in space. Hmm. Okay. But then uh, what, if, what if something like... Um because we are using light technically in different frequencies and especially you said infrared so if something blocks um, uh, the visible light or whatever the light that is being reflected off the surface and, and that would be coming to the satellite if something blocks it then what do we do in that sort of a condition well uh, you can't see the object then basically so but since we are sending these things out in space right hmm. and the objective is to uh, detect objects in space so uh, I I don't see uh, anything blocking the object, but if it is blocking, we want that object. The whole idea is to get the idea of uh, you know what objects are there in space, right? So if anything comes in the field of view, we know it. So we want that information. So mm. whatever is blocking that will also be an object, right? So we want to know about it. What what is the speed? What is the position? And we'll get that information. Mm. Uh, and like. Uh Talking about uh, not so space space weather satellites uh, like uh, the Hubble Space T Telescope, uh, which was uh, basically a tenth of the power of what the uh, James Webb Space Tele Telescope is. Uh, uh, so, uh, why did it take so much of time since then to develop another telescope, and that too just like ten ten folds the power of what the Hubble is? Why do you think well, uh, complexity is not just in the ten folds of power. It's also, you know, in the size, in the, you know, in the technology that is used. Also the orbit. Hubble is in Earth orbit, but uh, James Webb is where it's in Lagrange points. 
so it's like already very far and it's mm-hmm. doing it in infrared it needs you know advanced cooling systems the, the all in all the complexity of the system you know mm-hmm. warranted a lot of research decades of research billions of funding the difference is not just in the tenfolds of power there's a lot more difference than that that's mm-hmm. right Mm-hmm. Uh, so if if I'm talking about a satellite that just sees through uh, the space and at objects that we are targeting at, uh, does 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 a satellite work in a similar format? Like if if this James Webb is able to see something that is thirteen point eight or thirteen point five billion light years away, uh, does that like does that work in a similar concept that something has traveled thirteen point five billion uh, light years uh, far from where it's current location is and then it's seeing at those objects is, is that the basic concept of how uh, these telescopes work yes correct so uh, right now when you look into the sky what you are seeing is not the current time right you are seeing what happened like billions of years billions ago of years. Mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so uh, it's uh, the things that are farther away uh, you might have heard of uh, you know red shifting uh the universe is constantly expanding right so the things that are farther away from you mm-hmm. are moving faster away from you right mm-hmm. so uh objects that are moving away from you the colors from it shifts towards the left, uh, red side okay mm-hmm. so things that are moving faster the colors will shift more towards the red so things that are moving very fast it goes way beyond the red color it goes into infrared right so when uh, the light when you are detecting infrared you know lights come infrared light coming from stars what you are seeing is thing uh, stars that are going very fast away from you and since I, as i previously said objects that are farther away from you are moving faster away from you so what you are essentially seeing is things that are farther than you have ever seen before with visible light that's how that works hmm. so uh like you said things are f- moving faster away from you or faster in space time itself like because the space is expanding the things so are moving so the thing faster. is that the things are not moving the space yeah. is expanding faster so mm-hmm. that's what this whole idea that things fa- farther from you are moving faster from you is not because the things are moving it's because the space itself is expanding it's the space is accelerating in its uh, expa- expansion Some, something like yeah, that uh, not like not exactly accelerating it's just expanding everywhere so things that so is it uniform is it uniform or is it like uh, is it speeding up the expansion is speeding up or not expansion is i think slowing down i'm not sure though i don't know how the expansion speed is you know the thing the reason why uh, farther things are going faster is not because of change in the speed of expansion like if you draw if you draw a point three points in on a piece of paper okay and if you put one point in the center and you zoom that paper okay the the point nearer to you would have moved a smaller distance than the point farther away from you so it just they simply how expansion of space works so that's, that's perspective why, right because you no, the observer moved some somewhat closer and zoomed into the one specific object the one the other one moved a bit farther so, away yeah it's a, it's a perspective so with respect to you the things that are farther away from you are moving faster away from you. it's purely with respect to you mm-hmm. it's it's a okay. thing about perspective in a sense yeah mm-hmm. okay um moving on what are the multiple ways uh, a country can use its satellites and its asset, assets in space this is basic oh. but yeah Yeah. <laughs> I think Google will give you a better answer but okay yes, I'll yes. give you things top of uh, of the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Uh it can improve uh, you know agriculture. One major thing is that you know 
earth observation improves your idea about crops and you know soil qualities that's one thing but uh, moving on to the more interesting sites defense has a lot of use so mm. you can you know observe what your enemies are doing you can secure your borders you can track uh, you know where ships are going things like that that's Mm-hmm. So, okay, this should not go long this is a really basic one so um uh like uh, adibaya have you seen uh, pokhran hello yeah me me yeah yeah yes 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 i have I, 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 yeah, yeah yeah even i haven't like i ha- i have watched half of it but i understood the concept of what uh, the technology was in that that about which we were talking a couple of days ago so basically uh, it was like uh, uh, so could you tell uh, could you recall the part where uh, the cast was talking about two spy us satellites uh, which had a time gap of about an hour in which they had yeah, to test yeah. their nuclear missile yeah right so yeah yeah all the yeah, work had to be done at night for yeah. one hour mm-hmm. and uh, then the buzzer would go off and then the satellite would come and they would have to remove all traces of activity mm-hmm. that was there okay so did did they also like uh, to tell that all those satellites uh, that the both of the satellites could observe the time in a person's watch standing uh, here on earth it was it something like that yeah yeah that was the american satellites at that uh-huh. point of time yeah ha uh-huh. ha so uh-huh. when i asked this this the same question to anantu the other day <laughs> he said that this sounds like science fiction it's not i don't think that some some satellite that, like that exists uh, in so fact in fact today today mm-hmm. india's uh, local satellite systems can see up to like if i'm not wrong around 20 cm above the ground that's mm-hmm. how clear the resolution has become so of course americans though they were ahead only Mm-hmm. uh okay i i'm not sure that works uh, 20 cm above the ground oh, what exactly does that mean in the sense like is, if you are if you are talking forest. about if you are talking about say arunachal forest rain forest okay okay mm-hmm. so the average height of the tree there would be in meters right okay so penetrating those things also it can make up a, a map of the ground set with an oh, accuracy okay. of 20 cm that's possible like those are mountainous regions right so so uh, looking at the forest is hard to recognize where there is a small cliff or not because it's all quite green or white but the satellites looking at the uh, ground surface above 20 cm accuracy they can make a height map and everything like that yes, so that is uh, that works by penetration of that you know uh, radio signals it goes through the uh, you know trees and it reaches the ground but here the thing is that uh, uh it's all about resolution right so as you mentioned 20 cm uh, usually uh, earth observation missions are you know resolutions are in meters the best i've heard is like 15 cm 30 cm so what that means is that like one pixel will be that big right so like think of a watch a watch is what uh, 2 cm 3 cm in order to see a dial you will need a millimeter level resolution i at the best of my knowledge such a technology do not exist right now so i i mean it honestly sounds to me like a bollywoodified version of a story <laughs> but i would be happy if someone could prove me wrong in this uh, okay um any like uh, the questions on my side have almost ended so anything do you have on your side adiwe 
Okay, to be honest, uh, you spun the topic of discussion so far and wide. Hello, hello. Yep, yep. Now it's clear. Hello. Yep, yep. Now it's clear. Ah. So he's uh, looking up questions. In the meantime, I have a question for you. Like, what is the uh, thought process behind naming it the Wimper Podcast? It's quite a. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, uh, we came up with three names actually. It was like mm-hmm. quick. It was like in five minutes. I came up with three names. I pitched him, uh, and uh, then I said that look, I've come with uh, these three names. Which one do you like the most? And the three names were the Wimper Podcast. Uh, the other one was uh, the giant leap podcast and, uh, <laughs> and the third one was 764 million trillion trillion which was like completely uh, bizarre but yeah so so vimpa this vimpa thing uh, yeah i know what it means like, you know, mm-hmm. yeah so that's why my heart said okay this is the topic uh, actually 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 it reminded of uh, it reminded you of what uh, that is what he's asking um it reminded me of me wimping around in some mathematical session because uh the person's profile here was like space mission design the first thing that came into my mind was okay this is like uh, a lot of math and that's why my first fast, uh, imagination while a question was like what if we could just bypass it by just making a wormhole <laughs> okay it looks like someone so, hates math a lot <laughs> it's, the same, it's the same it's the same it's the same it's the same everywhere like mm-hmm. like i hate it <laughs> to be honest i mean, i only like using maths and basically physics but chemistry is bizarre completely uh, so hmm. so so i know you will be heartbroken to see that like uh, oh. from his talk it would feel oh, like okay he's a scientist already no he okay, in fact right. we talk when we talked the other day he said that he loved physics himself he was a physics pro he, and he was not really great at the other subjects but yeah <laughs> it is it's the same yeah. so yeah um. hey everyone thank you for listening to the third episode of the wimper podcast hope you enjoyed it and this is your host devyansh kunjan signing off